Welcome back to The Science of Work, where I, Dr. Lisa Melanger, take a deep dive into the habits, skills, work design, and leadership behind global trends in today's workforce. An undeniable trend in today's workforce is prioritizing people, more specifically, their mental well-being. And while I normally interview incredible experts from across the world, today, this is my topic. This is the world I live in. As leaders, there's not a lot of clarity on what exactly it means to prioritize people's mental well-being. The majority of today's leaders don't have mentors or predecessors that necessarily modeled proactive mental health practices, and companies and industries did not reward these practices for the most part. We are seeing a dramatic shift in today's workplace norms, priorities, and employees' desires and expectations of work. We reward white-knuckling through challenges, long work hours, and giving all to the company. There's been a trend in accounting, law, engineering, for junior partners not wanting to buy out senior partners with a clear statement. I don't want that life. I don't want to work 70 plus hours a week, regardless of that financial return. With this changing landscape, we as leaders don't necessarily know how to navigate success markers and may unintentionally reward competing factors. In this episode, I talk about what we can do for ourselves and for others to promote these proactive mental health and performance behaviors. In a world dancing with burnout, how do leaders protect the capacity, performance, productivity, and mental well-being of their teams? Let's dive in. The Science of Work is brought to you by the Quantic School of Business and Technology. Quantic's highly selective MBA and executive MBA are designed with interactive micro-lessons and individualized feedback every eight seconds. Experience the future of education. Go to quantic.edu slash scienceofwork for more. Prior to the pandemic, there was a major problem with how we work. I'm oversimplifying slightly. We basically took the rules that were set up during the Industrial Revolution primarily meant to be for labor work and factories and applied it to knowledge work. Humans sitting at computers where their work product are mostly defined by productivity, creativity, and innovation. We maintained five to six workdays a week, eight plus hours a day, and horrifically dated notion that long hours somehow equated to a good worker. This is flawed on many accounts, and what tends to suffer is our brain health, our mental well-being, our performance. Ironically, it's exactly what we need to be creative, to focus, to produce, to collaborate, and to build relationships. You add on all the ramifications from the pandemic, working from home, even more screen time and social isolation, a disruption of habits, most notably the decline in physical activity and the small bits of movement we got from walking to our car or to the next meeting, which has all been removed. In addition to this mass disruption, we also have entered and remain in a world of constant change and uncertainty, or as Ross Keller would put it, pivot, 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 pivot! <laughs> Many of us have not practiced how to deal with rapid change and uncertainty. Without some skills and mental agility, this just feels like stress. And that's above and beyond all the other stressors we are already experiencing. 
due to the change in work to remote and the cluster of world events and their personal ramification, the increase of distress experienced by, well, almost everyone, and the non-existent training for leaders to navigate change led to a remarkable amount of distrust. There's no quicker way to have employees disengage from work than distrust. I'm hearing more and more about companies using softwares to measure and record every keystroke or program that is used by companies to record any software that is opened up by employees. I cannot emphasize enough the disgust that I have for this practice. But beyond that, how is it actually helping? Do you think that is helping with creativity or productivity or success markers or confidence of employees? Why would you go and hire good talent and then spy on them? This is beyond just not being able to appropriately define success markers for your team. It's really a fundamental lack of leadership skills. This is not issues with employees. Now, I work for myself, so I understand this is different. But as soon as I started hearing about these programs, the first thought I had was how I could gamify it, how I could trick it. And that's where my creativity would be spent. How do I trick this program and open a different laptop? Keep a program open while I talk on the phone. Yes, I know I have a strong opinion on this, but it's true. Distrust and untrained leadership for remote work? These unreasonable expectations of work and probably better defined as computer time or the illusion of work is undoubtedly leading to this mass resignation. Or more importantly or impactfully or dishearteningly, the mass employee disengagement. So how do we let go of this old way of working? How can we as leaders be confident that employees are doing their work even at distance? How do we protect their mental well-being, their performance, encourage them while still moving the needle forward? How can we as leaders protect our own mental capacity and prevent burnout? So today we're going to talk about these five key factors that leaders can do, that employers can do to help protect the mental health of employees. Obviously, there's more than five but I picked these because of their cost efficiency and really that ROI. So number one, create success markers. When defining a new role or redefining an old role, can you tell the person doing the job how they know they're doing their job? So can you take the hours idea out of this and say, what are the outcomes we want to produce? What are they success markers? This is not always possible. There's some jobs that require a certain amount of hours to get the job done or client facing, perhaps. But when you can, can you give your employees the autonomy about how, when and what they do to get their job done? Now, this is with the understanding that they may be collaborations or specific requirements, sure. But again, where possible, can they pick and choose their own adventure with some guidance, of course. Let them know the rules of the game, then let them figure out how to play it. Now, in sport, this is how the best players are developed, and that's certainly true with most jobs as well. Hire good talent, then coach. Coaching might be a new skill for you. Conveniently, 
It's a learned skill, and there are countless courses you can take. Ask for mentorship when you see somebody doing it well. Read, practice, and think of yourself as a guide. Quickly, you will realize that with these metrics, a good project management software or communication system, regular check-ins, and your job becomes easier and their job becomes more enjoyable. At the end of the day, they'll be able to determine, did they do their job well and feel satisfaction from that and not have to wait for feedback or an annual review? And they can continue to progress, which is one of the things we really desire from work. Number two, ask people what they need to work at their best. Now, this seems like a simple question, but it isn't always asked. Actually, it's not usually asked. What do your team members need to do their job at their best? This could be flexible hours for family or caregiving responsibilities. It could mean a later start time due to sleep need. It could be software, training, guidance, support, mentorship, help with prioritization. And the list goes on. Much of which can be easily accomplished, but only if you know what it is. Armed with this knowledge, you can capitalize on your team members' talent, but most importantly, you can provide the team what they need to feel satisfied and successful in their role. Number three, and this is one I am particularly passionate about, telepressure. The number one stressor of employees beyond work hours is email. Email was never meant to be a form of instant communication, but a way to put something in somebody's mailbox so that they could respond when they could. There's a phenomenon that most people feel, which is an urge or pressure to respond to electronic communications. This is called telepressure. Even if emails are sent after hours, and even if it starts with, don't worry about this till tomorrow, this is listed as the number one reason people can't disconnect from work. A recent study found that the conscient urge to be responsive via email often leads to working in non-work hours, which in turn can impact all aspects of well-being, from reduced sleep quality to cognitive weariness that comes with burnout. As the traditional 9-to-5 structure has morphed over the last several years and will continue to morph, maintaining healthy boundaries with work has become increasingly challenging, yet more important than ever. We need to establish boundaries personally as leaders. It's more effective if you create communication strategies with your team to protect non-working restoration. So how can you decrease this urge, this telepressure? Delay send emails on whatever you contribute to non-working hours. Two of the largest services, Outlook, Gmail, all have this option. It's a matter of one more click, in some cases not even one more, just a strategic one. It is the best feature, in my opinion, for work from home and to add flexibility back into people's days, but not putting that stress on somebody else's desk. Setting communication hours up with your team. I've worked with teams that will say, you know, we only communicate from 6 a.m. till 6 p.m. People can work flexible hours whenever they want, but communication hours are 6 till 6. That is 
12 hours of possible communication and yet restricts and protects the next 12. Delay send when you can. We talk about different countries, France, and most recently, I think it was Turkey or Portugal, that are creating restrictions to communication hours. It's not about when somebody can work. It's about when that communication is received. So you can do emails after seven o'clock when you put the kids down, but you delay send so somebody else isn't receiving them at seven o'clock. We are trying to protect these hours and stop violating recovery time for yourself and for your teams. Ask yourself, does that even need to be sent as an email? There's other forms of communication, picking up the phone and calling somebody, meeting platforms, Slack that can be much simpler and better ways to communicate. The last one is managing expectations. So while this could be true for internal team or internal company, we cannot control when external clients or collaborators email us. So manage expectations. Have the conversation with regular repeaters that just say, you know, I'll respond within 24 hours. Or just so you know, we protect after hours or we protect this time. Just having that slight conversation will completely change the expectations and the communications that you do externally. I know people that put this as an automatic out of office. That can be repeatedly annoying if you're getting that often. But I've also seen it done very successful as part of your email signature. It is important to note, and as we talk about in season one, it is so important to be able to perform that we have respite. This idea of work-life balance, also addressed in season one, is really important. But whether or not it is nine to five and that's when you work or you have work-life integration where you float between your worlds of work world and personal life, which is most of us, you need hours every single day that you are 100% not working. This is something you can do to help your team, but probably more important, give your team permission to take non-work hours. They will perform better, period. Number four, gratitude. This has received so much attention lately. Expressing gratitude in the workplace has so many benefits. Apart from the personal benefits such as higher self-esteem, greater happiness and optimism, when cultivated and practiced in the workplace, Gratitude can lead to greater job satisfaction, more positive relationships with colleagues, greater motivation, and less stress and burnout. And it's free! As a leader, cultivating gratitude in the workplace doesn't have to be complicated. Simple expressions of gratitude, such as saying thanks to employees, can go a long way to improve morale and well-being. Not everybody likes to be thanked in the same way, so get creative. Get to know your team and think of ways that you can show individualized appreciation. Other ways leaders can cultivate gratitude in the workplace is the use of public appreciation walls. I don't know, maybe Google walls. I'm not sure how we do this in a virtual world. Encouraging 10-minute gratitude meditations, gratitude journaling, or simply adding a short gratitude practice at the beginning of meetings. 
At Conscious Works, we practice Thank You Thursdays. Every Thursday, I send a quick thank you to a colleague, a friend, a client, or somebody from my past. Gratitude for small things, large things, and everything in between. I encourage my team to do the same. I practice gratitude with my husband, especially on those stressful, bad days or when it seems like the whole world is on fire. It can be really hard to find things to be thankful for some days, but they're always there. I also practice gratitude when my mood is low or I start noticing I'm becoming cynical. I also note when others are becoming cynical and encourage them or ask them about gratitude. You cannot be grateful and cynical at the same time. It's a really powerful tool and easy to implement. Number five, learn how to disagree. We talk about this topic at length in our previous podcast, season two, episode 10 with Amy Gallo. So I'm just going to brush on the surface here. Disagreement, uncomfortable conversations and tensions are all natural and important parts of working with other human beings. They're required to unleash the potential of a diverse set of minds. If done well, it can push the company forward, be positively reflected in business KPIs, and create a psychologically safe workplace. If done poorly, it will increase stress, work anxiety, diminish relationships, increase turnover, and is responsible for so many sleepless hours. With a significant impact on people at work, the bottom line, it is amazing how little training and thought has gone into this aspect of work. May I suggest you start opening up the doors to this concept. Ensure your team knows how to disagree with you and with others. Show it is supported, encouraged, and will be rewarded. Come up with a plan for you and your team to manage conflict. Talk about how to manage conflict. When I did this episode with Amy Gallo, while I knew it was an important topic, I loved her approach where she works through how you can approach these topics, these difficult conversations with respect. Everything from generous assumptions, ensuring you understand the goals of the discussion, etc. Go listen to the episode. One thing that stuck with me she says, sometimes at the end of the day, someone might just be mad at you. Now, this should not have been revolutionary for me, but nobody's ever said, and as a designated people pleaser, that sometimes people will just be mad at you, regardless of everything else, and that's just okay. This will save me many sleepless nights and keep the company moving forward. So take a listen and start strategizing how exactly you deal with conflict and how you can manage it for your team and how you can help your team disagree respectfully. Okay, I lied. I said there was five things. I'm going to throw in a sixth. Can you whole model capacity building behaviors? For anybody listening and that has some sort of mental health program or some sort of wellness program at work, of course, they're really around what we often call self-care behaviors. So you're probably surprised that I haven't mentioned them before. But I'm going to address the first part of the whole modeling capacity building behaviors 
first. I say whole modeling instead of role modeling because we tend to put role models on a pedestal. Leaders and perfection have become far too synonymous. You will have a much greater influence if you are human. Not only does it relieve the pressure of perfectionism for you, it allows for open, honest conversations and not having people seek support only when things are going well, but also when things are not going as planned. As an example, I live in a very weird small town that has a remarkable amount of Olympic athletes. We have the Cross Country Ski National Training Center here, and I, oddly, have three Olympians on my street, all endurance athletes. Talk about pedestal. If I was starting endurance training, let's say a running program, would I seek their support? Probably, they're experts in the area. Would I seek their support if I was failing? Probably not. I'd be too embarrassed, frustrated. Leverage the power of having a 360-degree conversations. Cross-table, no hierarchy, no judgment, success, failures, and all the mess in between. So what exactly are capacity-building behaviors? Often called self-care behaviors, but this is remarkably misunderstood. I call them capacity-building because when you call them self-care they tend to be the first thing that drop off your to-do list, and especially when you need them the most. It implies they're selfish in the negative sense of the word. And three, self-care has been sold in industry as bubble baths, wines, and candles. Like, no, just no. Capacity-building behaviors are what allow us to recover from stress and work and build capacity to handle whatever comes next. If you think of a bucket with water being poured into it, the bucket would represent our capacity. The water is our mental load or stressors. Capacity building behaviors are like poking holes in that bucket, allowing the stressors to flow out and not overflowing the bucket. Capacity building behaviors and their impact or effectiveness are different for everyone. Think through what behaviors charge you up and what drain you, and they're not always what you enjoy versus not. For example, your children can drain you and you can still very much love them. Or for me, a keynote, a keynote all the time. I love it. It is what I am passionate about, but it drains me. And all this means is that I need to recover after. And keynoting is not going to be what I need to do when I recover. Some people are charged by lying on a beach. Some people that would drain. Some people are charged by being on a speedboat. Some people that would drain. So think about what your drains and chargers are. And those chargers will often be really effective ways to recover or capacity building behaviors. On the whole, very effective capacity building behaviors are things like physical activity, meditation or mindfulness practices, connecting socially, spending time in and around nature. See season two, episode five. Are these built into your day? Do you find it hard to do them? Are their behaviors more effective than others? 
These are meaningful conversations that can have a profound impact on your own capacity and the capacity of your team to deal with stressors, rapid change, uncertainty, and everything else that life throws your way. We have such a great influence as leaders. Let's use this to build capacity, to build mental strength and agility, and to build the people on our teams. The Science of Work is brought to you by the Quantic School of Business and Technology. Quantic's highly selective NBA and executive NBA are designed with interactive micro lessons and individualized feedback every eight seconds. Experience the future of education. Go to quantic.edu slash science of work for more. If you're interested to learn more about how you can help develop your leaders to be proactive about mental health, build team capacity, prevent burnout, and improve performance, this happens to be one of my favorite topics and central to the work we do at Conscious Works. We would love to hear from you. Reach out or connect over coffee by emailing connect at consciousworks.com. leaders, we know we have an impact on how our team works. But the impact is often more profound than we realize. And we equally have influence about how our team does not work. Meaning, we unintentionally or intentionally provide a framework for effective recovery, capacity building behaviors, and how we value and how they should value our mental well-being. In recent research from Accenture, they talk about leaving employees net better off. This seemed first perplexing and kind of a weird way to say it, but then I thought about it and it resonated. People should be better off for working for us, and yet many companies and leaders leave people drained and deflated. Don't be that guy. The more we understand about how our brains function, how we work, and how much recovery we need, the workplace needs to evolve to leverage the science and move us forward to a healthy, sustainable, interesting, and profitable way of working. It's not health or profits. It's easily can be both health and profits with a humanistic approach to work. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Science of Work podcast. A special thank you to my team behind the scenes from Rob Murray, a sound engineer, Marina Dorkson on visuals and transcripts, and Dr. Julie Ann Fritz on research support. This incredible team make the podcast possible. For full transcripts, sources, please visit our website at consciousworks.com. Remember, consciously design your day or somebody else will. Thank you.